0: This is a download from News Talk 106 to 108. To download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108.
1: And you're very welcome back to Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Susan Cahill. Well, they say there's a book in everyone, but when it comes to my next guest, there is at least 10. Last Hours in Everest by adventure mountaineer and historian Graham Holland. Reads like the best of thrillers and brilliantly mixes history, biography, and adventure. I met up with the high-octane Graham and asked him what it's like chasing your heroes.
0: Well, I was only 12 years old when I met a relative of mine, Howard Somerville who was on one of the first Everest expeditions, and he told this amazing story. He was 86 years old, and he was telling me at the age of 12 how he had lent his camera to his friend George Mallory on Mount Everest in 1924, and how George Mallory had disappeared up into the clouds with his friend Sandy Irvin, carrying my cousin's camera, and they disappeared forever. And old Howard Somerville said to me, if you could find that camera, you could prove that George Mallory climbed Everest first. I decided then and there I would try and learn how to climb, try and climb Mount Everest for myself, and hunt for that camera. And it's sort of, um, most of it's happened, I suppose. I learned to climb. I climbed Everest in '93 um, and became the 15th Briton to climb Mount Everest. But you see, I was trying to prove that I was the um, 16th or 17th. I was trying to prove that George Mallory had done it with Sandy Irvine. So I kept on looking for the camera and in the end, my expedition found George Mallory's body in 1999.
1: And it's clear a lot of your own personal experience comes into the book. I'm just wondering, I've read a lot of books on Everest and, you know, it strikes me that a lot of people who write about Everest haven't essentially climbed Everest. How has climbing Everest over nine times helped you get into the mindset of Mallory?
0: I think it makes a big difference to write a history book from the perspective of of someone who's actually done what the protagonist did. You know, to climb Everest in Mallory's clothes, which I I did in 2007, his clothes were replicated from the clothes we found on his body. And um, I was wearing six layers of um, first of all, silk, then cotton, then wool, and then silk again and cotton and wool, layers and layers of these amazing clothes. And I found all sorts of interesting things, that they were lighter, they were easier to wear, more comfortable, they smelt nicer than modern clothes, but I think they probably weren't good enough to keep him alive on the summit of Everest.
1: And of course, today we have a lot of very sophisticated equipment, as compared to what Mallory would have had when he attempted his fatal ascent. Can you talk to me a little bit about the conditions they faced that fateful day?
0: Well, um, for years people thought Mallory and Irvine had good weather to climb Everest in 1924, but in fact I searched for weather records which had been recorded by my uh, relative Howard Somerville and discovered to my amazement that actually Mallory and Irvine were climbing up into a perfect storm. This was worse weather than was recorded in 1996 with the Into Thin Air disaster when 12 people died. It turned out that, in fact, the air pressure had gone so low that they were effectively climbing a mountain a thousand feet higher. And I found that uh, quite shocking, that that evidence that I discovered. It was new research and it completely changed my mind. I'd been trying to prove that they had climbed the mountain and then I suddenly realised that they probably couldn't.
1: And as a writer, how challenging is it when your world is turned upside down like that?
0: Well, it's interesting, isn't it? If if you believe something strongly all your life and you try and prove that they had done it, which I had been for years, when you finally realize in your researches that uh, actually you've got it all wrong and that you've got to completely change your mind, it was a hell of a shock. You know, my publisher expected a book all about how Mallory and Irving had climbed Mount Everest first, and then I had to tell them that, no, I'd found new evidence that showed that they probably hadn't. And um, it was quite a shock. But I think really, if you find new evidence, you you have to change your mind. You know, that's what being a historian is. That's what being a scientist is.
1: I suppose the story centres on the relationship between you and Mallory and your research and also the kind of the broader relationships that take place on Everest. Would I be right in saying that Everest and climbing Everest is a bit like a marriage, a long term marriage? (laughs)
0: <laughs> yes my relationship with mount everest lasted much longer than my my marriage sadly um the thing about a mountain like everest it completely swallows you up you know i've spent 2 years of my life living on it in uh, many expeditions each time you're completely away from home and unfortunately when you go back home to your wife as i as i did do each time the relationship was a bit cooler and unfortunately in the end everest came between me and the marriage and um, it came to an end.
1: So the mother of the world, essentially, which the Buddhists call Everest, can be, well, obviously fatal in Mallory's case, but can actually take over entirely people's lives and the story of their lives, which you've shown in your book, essentially.
0: That's true, but I think the very best of, People who climbed Everest managed to develop away from it. For example, Sir Edmund Hillary, when he climbed Everest, he didn't keep on going back there. He um, started doing things like crossing Antarctica and driving tractors, uh, Ferguson tractors, across to the South Pole. I've taken up sailing now. I, I got a boat and I've decided to try and sail around the world and climb the highest mountain in each continent. So um, I think it's important to actually try to develop away from Everest and do something completely different.
1: Now, one of the extraordinary things in the book is that you were clearly responsible for the research and obviously how the team found Mallory's body in 1999. What was that like being part of that team and also being instrumental in finding your hero?
0: It was a huge shock to find George Mallory. In my family, we had a story that had been kept secret, which is that a climber had seen a body in 1933 through a telescope, and this body was clearly that of Mallory or Irvin. And this had been kept quiet because they didn't want to make a fuss in the press. And I couldn't actually corroborate the story until I got a letter. But it was true enough, and when we went in 99, my expedition found Mallory exactly where this sighting had put him. I had actually fallen ill by then and had been sent home, so I wasn't present when the body was found, and in a funny way, I'm quite glad I wasn't. In appearance, he had just frozen where he lay. He looked something like um, a white marble statue. He was face down, and um, it would have been rather shocking for me to actually see the man just as he died at the age of 36 or so.
1: There was a tweet recently from a Canadian climber and she said climbing Everest was more like climbing into a morgue. How difficult is it to walk past bodies? It's
0: pretty unpleasant climbing up Everest. When I went to the summit, I passed five bodies curled up in the snow and ice as I walked past. Um, You don't want to look at them particularly. And when I came down, another climber was killed right in front of me and and fell 3,000 feet So that was a sixth body. I think it's disturbing and you don't want to really look at them. And uh, it's not something that climbers really want to think about, what's happened to these bodies.
1: And of course, uh, you were on Everest and certainly while you didn't walk past David Sharp's body, a very well-known British climber, you actually recorded the audio transmissions while you are working for the BBC.
0: That's right. In 2007, David Sharp was on the mountain climbing it alone and got into trouble and hoped for rescue. But unfortunately, as he lay there dying, dozens of people were climbing up past him and dozens of people didn't help him. One of my colleagues on the expedition came down from the summit and tried to help him, tried to give him oxygen. It wasn't successful. The poor man was in a terrible way and my friend was extremely upset i heard all this on the radio i was recording it for a film we were making it was a very distressing experience and um i really wouldn't want the parents to to ever have to hear that sort of thing it it was a very distressing event
1: but of course it's a reality if you're a climber and trying to climb the highest mountain in the world
0: yes I think everyone has it in the back of their mind that it could happen to them. But if you really genuinely thought you were going to be killed on the mountain, you wouldn't go, I hope. I think, I suppose, you always think it won't happen to me.
1: Now, Graeme, could I get you to read from your book? There is a beautiful description and a very atmospheric description of Mallory on the day of that ascent.
0: Yes, this is from the prologue of Last Hours on Everest. Dawn broke fine on that fatal day. A couple of thousand feet above the tiny canvas tent, the summit of the world's highest mountain stood impassively, waiting for someone to have the courage to approach. Inside the ice-crusted shelter, two forms lay as still as death. Then there was a groan, a stirring, and eventually the slow scratch of match against sandpaper. Low voices shared the high-altitude agonies of waking the heating of water, and the struggle with frozen boots. As the sun rose through wisps of cloud beyond the Tibetan hills to the east, one of the men emerged through the tent flaps. It was a fine morning for the attempt, with only a few clouds in the sky. The two of them stood for a while, shuffling their feet and blowing into their hands. Inside the tent lay a mess of sleeping bags and food. The men lifted oxygen sets onto their backs, then turned towards the mountain and stamped off into history.
1: That's an incredibly powerful description, I have to say. It's brilliantly written, Graeme. And, you know, I was quite amused when I read it because I was recently on a trip to Nepal and you cannot imagine the difference, you know, not just the equipment, the clothing, the whole reality of climbing and what we know now and the science of climbing to their instinctual approaches that they would have took nearly 100 years ago.
0: That's right. Uh, many things have changed in climbing Everest. In fact, one of my chapters is titled, When Did Everest Get So Easy? Nowadays, anyone with money and determination can climb the mountain. In fact, there was a Japanese man on the summit, aged 80. There was a 13-year-old boy, got to the summit. And you've got to ask why. Well, one, one reason is that the clothes are better. We now wear um, down suits. We have better boots, double boots. We have better food. We know about the fact that we have to drink many litres of water a day. Um, and we know the way to go. We have Sherpas to help us and we have yaks to carry our equipment. The whole thing has completely changed. But in those days, they were true pioneers.
1: And, you know, this is very much a story of proof of evidence as well as personal memoir. It's a really riveting read. I laughed in parts. I was nervous in parts. I was very engaged. But I guess for anyone listening, they'll have to buy the book to figure out who climbed Everest first.
0: That's right. I mean, I wrote the book as a thriller, as an adventure story with a a doubtful outcome. Uh, I hope it'll excite and interest and intrigue people. And uh, I hope they think a little bit of George Mallory, the great pioneer of Everest.
1: OK, before I head, I just want to say thank you to all our lovely listeners who took the time to email talkingbooks at newstalk.ie. It's great to hear from you, really great. So keep the emails coming in. Well, that's it for Talking Books for me this morning. I'd just like to say thank you to Alan Regan on sound and to the wonderful Ronan Bernock who helped me with this morning's show. We've been Talking Books. Why don't you climb out of bed, pull on a strong coffee, get some fresh air, and make the most of today with a very, very good book? Talking books on News Talk one hundred and six to one hundred and eight.